0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Have you ever spent some time at the historic New Orleans collection on Royal Street? If not, one of the greatest treasures of New Orleans is awaiting you there. And it's all free. Earlier this year, the collection expanded into a much larger space. Are now their permanent galleries that reveal the full history of the French Quarter—a very exciting thing to see for locals and visitors alike. One of my favorite features is a 17-minute immersive film by Glenn Petrie and Michelle Benoit, where the quarter literally grows around you, from the original forest roamed by Native Americans to a rollicking crew de voo snaking their way down Bourbon Street. There's so much to see that Dana and Christina Hahn have opened Café Core, a courtyard eatery where guests can rest, reflect, and refuel. On this episode of Louisiana Eats, we'll get a personal tour from John Lawrence, director of museum programming, as well as chef Dana Hahn. Finally, we sit down with the HNOC's new president and CEO, Daniel Hammer, who demystifies the process of utilizing the reading room of the Williams Research Center, located nearby on Charter Street. The historic New Orleans collection is one of my favorite places on earth, and I am thrilled to be able to share it with you on this week's Louisiana Eats. New Orleans French Quarter is the city's most famous neighborhood, known for its food, music, and 300 years of history. Most of its unique structures come from the 18th and early 19th century, reflecting colonial Spanish and French architectural styles. Thanks to the work of 20th century preservationists who maintained and restored these buildings, the Vieux Carré can feel like a setting frozen in time. Carrying on this preservationist mission today is the historic New Orleans collection. Founded in 1966, the HNOC is a museum, publisher, and research center dedicated to preserving the history and culture of the city. Over the years, it's grown to include several historic buildings, making up two French Quarter campuses. Their most recent addition, at 520 Royal Street, is the first to house the city's only continuing exhibit on the quarter's history.
1: A history as old as the structure itself. I'm John Lawrence, Director of Museum Programs at the Historic New Orleans Collection, and we're here at the Signore Brulator House, the newest project of our institution. This complex encompasses over two centuries of architecture.
0: With the original structure built in 1816, the Seigneur Brulator House has served many functions over its lifetime. After greeting us in the courtyard, John Lawrence invited us upstairs, where he described the fascinating history of the house and its
1: owners. François Signolet is the builder of the house that survives today, this 1816, so just over 200-year-old structure. Um, Francois Signolet operated two principal enterprises on this. One was uh, a furniture-making workshop, and we have uh, examples of Signore's uh, furniture that he either built or had imported to sell as a retailer, but he was also um, an importer of Bordeaux wine. Pierre Brulatour, a later tenant uh, or owner in the 19th century, also was a wine merchant, as was Pierre Cavarac, who had a brief tenancy here as a wine importer. And in the early 20th century, we see William Irby enter the picture. Irby's fortune was made in the tobacco business. His um, philanthropy, as well as his ownership of the building, gives us a very, very strong identity for this address during the decades between the World Wars when William Irby granted use of portions of the building to the Arts and Crafts Club of New Orleans. I think it's at this point, with all of the art students and art lovers on premises, we begin to see the Brulatour Courtyard, as it was known, uh, become one of the almost shorthand references for all courtyards in New Orleans. And then, in the early 1950s, uh, WDSU Um, occupies this um, as their television studio the first in New Orleans and I think for um, many New Orleanians this will be uh, the touchstone that they have and again that courtyard became a signature identity with the TV station having they would do broadcasts from the courtyard they would feature it on their station promos.
0: The third floor exhibit in the building is made up of eight thematic galleries each presenting different aspects of French Quarter history, the first of its kind in the Crescent
1: City. We're delighted that um, this series of eight galleries seems to be the first uh, long-term and uh, conscious exhibit that really focuses on the French Quarter neighborhood as a historical place. Um, Certainly shorter terms exhibits, uh, any number of publications have touched this ground before. But because so many visitors to New Orleans come to the French Quarter, we felt it was important for people to understand its history beyond the modern history that they can experience on their own. You know, you can go through these rooms in a a breezy fashion or in a very, very detailed and study way. We hope that, especially for regular visitors to the city or residents, um, they will take the opportunity when they're in the French Quarter to look at these exhibits multiple times and discover new things each time they, they, they visit.
0: As John took us into the first gallery, we could hear the sounds of the new immersive film installation next
1: door. Yes, a 300 year sweep of the French Quarter at nighttime. Certainly today's visitors associate certain thing with the French Quarter at night, whether it's um, having a drink or listening to music or going, uh, going out to eat. But um, we wanted to kind of break out of that narrow view of what happens to the French in the French Quarter at night.
0: As we walked through each gallery, we viewed artifacts that painted a portrait of the Vieux Carré, framed by topics like transportation, media, and commerce. John was quick to show us how the city's culinary history has always been part of our narrative.
1: People can see that what is being used to uh, market New Orleans is very much centered on uh, the food and drink and the culture that that represents of New Orleans. If you look at this tourist map uh, of 1942, uh, which was uh, a common type of uh, souvenir item for visitors to the city, you can see that um, Broussards and Galatoires and Antoines are all picked out as highlights on this map, along with historical markers like the Pontalba buildings and the Jackson statue and any number of. Other places that we associate with the French Quarter.
0: There's a vegetable vendor. There's a cala lady. Right, I know that's uh,
1: dear to your heart. <laughs>
0: and they even mention snowballs. It's really something.
1: And I wanted to point out just a couple of other things before we leave this room. Uh, we have um, two books displayed. One is the New Orleans City Guide of 1938, a, a very celebrated. Um, publication about New Orleans and next to it from uh some 25 years earlier is Wood's Directory. Wood's Directory was a listing of services that were catered uh that catered to African Americans. And so in a segregated city where not everything was open to everyone, Wood's Directory became uh, uh an invaluable resource for African Americans both visitors and residents to find services. Also in here, uh, we talk about residents of the French Quarter. We um, begin with the Native Americans who were certainly present in uh, in the lower Mississippi Valley near New Orleans. We talk about German uh, presence in the French Quarter. And people can begin to understand the legacy of uh, German contributions to New Orleans cuisine. We have materials that relate to the Sicilian population of New Orleans and also the Chinese population in New Orleans uh, in a very tiny district, mostly along uh, a few blocks of Bourbon Street. All of these things um, kind of come together. Uh, one of them may not shine uh, in a, a with a certain brightness, but altogether they create this wonderfully vibrant element of contributions to how we enjoy food today.
0: It's a fascinating fabric that the whole thing weaves together make.
1: I think all of this, whether we're talking about food or just other elements of daily life, it's clear that today still, but perhaps less so, the French Quarter was a neighborhood, and it was place where people live, where they work. You could find everything you needed within uh, the confines of the district. And maybe that's not as true today, but it's it's something that we wanted people to understand in this exhibition, that it wasn't just a place for visitors. It was a place where uh, residents lived their lives and had very full, rich, creative lives as well.
0: John Lawrence, director of museum programs at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Our visit barely scratched the surface of the offerings on display in the three-story complex. The only way to truly appreciate it is to visit yourself. And that immersive film experience? We're going to hear all about it next from a legendary Louisiana filmmaker.
2: My name is Glenn Petrie. My wife, Michelle Benoit, and I were the writers, producers, and directors of the French Quarter by Night, which is the immersive film at the new facility at 520 Royal Street.
0: Decades before Louisiana became known as Hollywood South, Glenn Petrie was making low-budget, Cajun dialect gumbo westerns that broke records in Bayou movie houses. In 1986, his English language film, Belazar the Cajun, became an international sensation. Since then, the legendary director has worked in a variety of media, often about life in his native Louisiana. As part of the Historic New Orleans Collection's new expansion, Glenn, along with his wife, Michelle Benoit, created an immersive film that fills the room with imagery and sound. Projected on four walls and played in a continuous loop, the 17-minute experience showcases over three centuries of the French Quarter after nightfall
3: the ball the ball Get your papa for okay, mama.
0: We joined Glenn Petrie at the HNOC to discuss the project. This experience is like no other. You sit in this darkened space, and 300 years of New Orleans history happens around you in 17 minutes. How did you make that magic happen?
2: It was a long road. It was a long project, uh, two years, nine months from, from the day they called us in and said, would you do this, till it opened to the public. And it presented so many challenges, both technical, because it's, you know, I've been making movies, you know, my whole adult life, and I'm used to that horizontal rectangle on the screen, and that's that's where you tell your story. And here was one where the mandate was, it's gotta be all around you, it's gotta surround you. Uh, so there's multiple projectors, there's 10 channels of sound, and just figuring out how to tell a story that way uh, because you know people don't have eyes in the back of their head. So how do, you, how do you get them to turn around and see the next thing starting up over here and the next thing starting up over here? It's also unlike a regular movie where it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's the first thing you learn about you know, screenwriting. Um, this one, you don't know when people are going to walk in. They walk in whenever and they leave the moment they get bored. So the mandate is, grab them quick, and don't let them get bored.
3: <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, step right up, step right in, come see the burlesque
2: show. So there was the technical things, and then just trying to squeeze in so many different aspects, and and the, you know, the script get longer and longer because we well we gotta have this, we gotta have section about restaurants, and we gotta have something on Bourbon Street, and we gotta have the colonial times. Well there's French colonial and Spanish colonial and then the Americans got it and there's a battle in New Orleans and then you know and wait a minute, what was it like before, you know, the white man got here and the riverbank? You get the sense in the start of the film
0: that you are there before the white men arrive. Explain how you made that magic.
2: There were a lot of technical tricks. Uh, We started with the photographs of Frank Relly, who actually has a a gallery on Royal Street, uh, who does a lot of nighttime treescapes, because we needed oak trees, which would have been a thing, but then cypress along the riverbank. Uh, And then we had um, Charlie Lavoie, who was our, you know, ace animator, visual effects supervisor, started compositing and putting that together into pieces so that we you know had these various pictures because it had to go all around you. And then we brought into our studio uh, branches and palmetto leaves and moss so we could add to it. and, and foolish me you know, I'm gonna do it in front of a green screen if people know what green screen looks like and got it all set up and realized, well, the leaves are green, too. They're going to disappear as well. <laughs> so we had to build a blue screen, by which point all the leaves had shriveled up. So I had to get new branches and do it all over again. Uh, and then when the Choctaw Indians arrived, we first spot the New Orleans a building. Uh, we got two home Indians and filmed that through the, the screen arts program at LSU. So we're actually in the quad under one of those oak trees. And we blacked out the library in the background and had lights at night. And uh, you know, had him dressed in one. One of the Native Americans is is actually an attorney, and he was, he was a little shy about getting into a loincloth, you know, <laughs> on, on the LSU quad. Uh, but we talked him into it. Uh, we gave we gave him a fake fur cape, so that built picture. But then you have to build sound.
0: One of the dazzling facts to me where all of the different voices and dialects going on through. There's no subtitles. It's like you're eavesdropping on 300
2: years of conversations. Well, first of all, you don't subtitle a gumbo. You don't subtitle a fricassee. You let the flavors blend. I know there's Choctaw, there's Igbo, there's Wolof, there's French, there's Spanish, there's English, there's Latin there's Italian, there's Sicilian, which is a separate language, and then Castilian Spanish, and we also have Spanish with a Canary Island accent mixed in. So, trying to get those things in there. And again, it's just for flavor. You don't, you, the hope is people go in and let it wash over them, uh, because there are no subtitles, there's no explanations. There's some things that most people you know, won't get.
3: Have you seen my papa? Try the salute. Try the salute. Try the salute. Who killed kill the, the, the chief? chief. Who killed the, kill
2: the chief? chief. <laughs> there was an anti-Italian catcall, very common in the early 1900s, called Who killed a chief? Who killed a chief? Because there was a police chief who had been murdered, and it was assumed that the Sicilians had done it. So we wanted to get that in there. So we found some, you know, there was a scene with some kids, so we had the kids do that. There was, you know, wanted to get a Bourbon Street Barker in there, you know, so I got somebody to riff. But the trick was, you know, this thing is going on, you're traveling through all these different eras and all these different subjects and all these different things, and you didn't want to hear the same few voices over and over. So we have, I don't know, a few hundred different people whose voices appear in this thing. And it got to be a joke that nobody could stop by our studio over on Mandeville Street. Without being nabbed and put in front of a microphone, and say, uh, could, could you tell them not to bruise the bananas as they unload the boat? Or could you tell them, you know, order up with another order coming in? And just all the different things. Order
3: in three chicken killing one part of mushroom. Order in.
0: Amazingly, in that 17 minutes, You've got a lot of food in there. Would you walk us
2: through your food moments? There are a couple that really jumped for me. One was Modern Day. And we we filmed the kitchen at Arnos. And it we, it served two purposes. One is just, just the restaurant tradition, but also we wanted to show that, you know, Bourbon Street is not just a place where tourists visit, it's a place where locals work. And so we we went behind the scenes at the kitchen and for most of the film because people are up close to the screen it's all around you and you're not sitting way back like you are in a movie theater um, you know so you can't have things too too big because you can't see them but for that we wanted it big so you know you when the flames shoot up from the frying pan it's five feet high you know and it's all around you and the sounds of a kitchen you know order up and people are calling and this and that I mean it's, uh, it's just a uh, a lot of folks when they enjoy their meals don't don't appreciate the hustle that went into putting that on the table everything at once everything served hot just you know looking so beautiful on the plate so that's one the other for me that really says food is when we recreated the French market circa 1900. There's a woman who's, she's 102 now. I guess she was 100, straight up 100 when I interviewed her. Memory-like attack and talked about the French market. And they would go, and they'd go at night. You know, they'd go Thursday night was the time to see and be seen. Because Friday you'd eat fish. It's you know it's a very Catholic town. Friday you'd eat fish, so you'd go on Thursday night to buy what you would need. But because everybody was going, it's you'd wear your nicest clothes and stuff. Um, so, so you know there are touches here and there, uh, you know, relating to food because food was just so much, you know, part of this this community, this history, the French Quarter, the French. You know, at one point early on, we thought about well, maybe we we'll use one of those scenting systems so you can, you know, smell the cooking and stuff, and it, just, it was just technically way too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way to confine it to just that room. Um, but, but there are certainly hints of the food, yeah. We, we, we see food at work, yeah.
0: Well, Glenn, I am so grateful to have had this time to spend with you, and I certainly hope we have inspired everybody to beat a quick path down to Royal Street and see what is truly, I think, one of the greatest free shows on earth.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's free. Absolutely, it's free.
0: That was Glenn Petrie, father of the Cajun cinema and co-creator of the French Quarter by Night. When we come back from a short break, we'll learn what's cooking in the courtyard at 520 Royal Street. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Happy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter, right around the corner from the HNOC. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm mufaladas. All-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street.
4: I'm Dana Hahn. I'm executive chef and co-owner of Carmo and Café Coeur in the French Quarter.
0: With its historic character and charisma, for generations the French Quarter has played muse to artists, writers, and musicians. The same can be said for chef Dana Hahn, whose love for the quarter inspired him to settle down in New Orleans and open Carmo in 2010. With menu options for vegans, vegetarians, and meat-eaters alike, the casual Tropical Cafe has made its mark on the city's warehouse district. With the historic New Orleans collection's new expansion, Dana and his wife Christina have opened an offshoot of Carmo called Cafe Cour, located in the courtyard of the Signore Brulator house. We spoke with Dana to learn about his new restaurant. But first, I wanted to hear the story of how this non native chef came to open Carmo and call New Orleans home. Dana, you're not from here. When did you become such a passionate fan of the French Quarter, our cultural history? How did you develop this passion?
4: Well, I, you know, I moved around most of my life. My dad was a Methodist minister. Um, so you know, which typically they move folks every few years, and uh, then we we settled down and ended up uh, opening a restaurant. But even still, we were always uh, kind of mobile. So th- I've lived here at least twice as long as I've lived any place else. But but growing up, I was into music and played saxophone. So I discovered Harold Batiste at a, from a fairly young age, who kind of spurred my interest a little bit in New Orleans and then began to realize that a lot of the music that I liked came from New Orleans. And so it became almost like a mythical you know destination for me. And then when I was finally able to visit here, I realized that it's a magical place that that I needed to be at some point. And uh, so that that's where the interest came from. And frankly, you know, for for me, the perfect afternoon, From the time I lived here was going to the the Williams Research Center you know spending a whole afternoon and walking away with with a stack of photocopies going over to Napoleon House having a beer and and a tuna sandwich and and reading through those so that's yeah I I don't think I could not live here now so
0: it's incredible the way in New Orleans food and music always holds hands
4: Yeah, and now living here, I always tell people who are visiting it's like, listen, if you're if you're not cool with hearing music, you know, at least every day somewhere, you know, whether it's on the street or or you know, walking past a club or whatever, and if you're not cool with standing on the street corner and talking to somebody about red beans and rice or or whatever, you know, whatever the music uh, conversation is, it's not a place for you. <laughs> this 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 is not a place of personal you know, kind of space. It's a shared, it's a shared personal space.
0: Tell me how Carmo began.
4: Really began in San Francisco, at least the idea for it. We, we were living in San Francisco, Christina, my wife was working in different restaurants. We had a production company, we were doing catering, we were doing cooking classes, vegan cooking classes on the weekend. Uh, when we found out at a certain point uh, for my production company, we had we were paying more than 50% rent, uh, San Francisco rent with New Orleans money, which is not a good exchange. So we decided to move down here, which was was the perfect move. Uh, we began a catering business called Pierre Dagobert's Kitchen. Uh, then we actually did a lot of the catering for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum for different events. We ended up finding the spot in the warehouse district, finally, and it was just a food counter with Christina and I. And, and uh, so that's that's kind of where it all began. Well, you were
0: just then the perfect person for the HNOC to turn to when in their fabulous new facility on Royal Street, the Senore Brulator building, they decided that they needed a little cafe so that their visitors could linger. Tell me how you ended up here on Royal Street at the HNOC.
4: Well, uh, we responded to an RFP request, and and uh, when uh, we, we began our proposals, it was a pretty quick process. Uh, we put it together, uh, put a menu together, and I really just tried to keep it grounded in traditional cuisine of New Orleans. I'll start with the first dish that, that I actually uh, began research with, which having been to Italy and, and been intrigued by something they call a muffaletto um, in Sicily, that that's a, that's a dish which, or a sandwich, which I knew that there had to be an interesting connection. Of course, we all know it as the dish that was Created uh, at least in in our familiar version uh, at Central Grocery, it it did have a long history, perhaps hundreds of years, uh, uh, and and even longer before that.
0: It's in Sicily. That's fascinating.
4: Well, and uh, I did find reference to it being sold on the streets of New Orleans by street vendors. It it's a uh, it is a sandwich. The muffaletto is actually the. Bread, you know, and and that word etym- the etymology of that word connects to a lot of familiar things like muffin. You know, comes from that same root. Um, so it is a bread. In this case, the 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 specific of a Sicilian mufaletu is the fennel or anise seed and durum wheat that's used to make this bun. You know, in Italy, you might find uh, different versions of it. Most of the versions uh, will contain seafood. One of the most iconic is the one kind of we we patterned ours after, which is uh, with a little bit of poached tuna, some olive oil, some uh, olives, uh, some uh, roasted peppers, anchovies, a little bit of pecorino. So very kind of, well, kind of Mediterranean in, in style. And it makes sense. I think it makes sense when you taste it. You taste something that tastes like a mufalada, a <laughs> but but it it has it tastes older. It tastes something you know something. Uh, I want to say historic. You know. So
0: it is so fascinating what you normally find in today's culinary world. Someone has embellished. Someone has invented. Someone has fused. And instead. You just went back in time for authenticity for what is really a new taste for New Orleans.
4: Yeah, I mean, every time I start to go and, you know, research a particular dish or just read, I just like to read about whether it's old menus or whether it's uh, my favorite thing right now is going on newspapers.com and going through the archived Uh, newspapers of New Orleans in different languages even and then you find references to all of these foods that you had no idea either that were popular, maybe 100 or 150, uh, even 200 years ago, but also that really were very significant and important in our food early food ways. Many of those things have disappeared. And so it's just, it's just a delight to be able to look back and find things that, especially when they turn out to be delicious, you know, that, that's, that's the best thing.
0: So what um, else is on the menu?
4: Let's see, another important uh, menu item for us is the akara, um, which actually, you know, uh, technically is a black eyed pea kala, as outlined in the famous song that, uh, that, that's uh, documented in Gombo Yaya. And, you know, the fact that, that there were, everybody knows about the rice cola. Well, black IP collas be, were being sold by, by street vendors alongside of the rice cola. And the fact that they have such a direct connection to West Africa, in our case, I think vis a vis the Antilles, but, you know, uh, of course, there are versions of acara that show up in different places. In Brazil, is acaraje then it becomes akara, and then it becomes kala. So the black-eyed pea kala that we have on the menu is you know, very much um, related to that West African ancestor. And then we just serve it with a little um, like, uh, pickled okra and some hot sauce. So we, we love hot sauce. We use a lot of different types of peppers to make our own hot sauces. Um, yeah, so those are, those are a few items.
0: What's the reaction been?
4: The reaction has been, you know, pretty good. I mean, you know, we get a lot of uh, people who are coming in as tourists that that really don't know what they're walking into. You know, my gauge is uh, whether plates are coming back clean or not. And by and large, they are. Every once in a while, somebody will order something and say, well, that's not really what I expected, which we we try to help them find something that's a little bit uh, less uh, kind of out there maybe for them. But, you know, a sandwich has to be good. You know, the salad has to be good. You know, so we're just trying to make good food.
0: Executive chef and co-owner of Carmo and Cafe Core, Dana Hahn. Did the historic New Orleans collection come to exist right there in the heart of the French Quarter? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. i Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I hope you'll join me for the launch of my new book, Drag Queen Brunch. We'll get the party started at Brennan's Restaurant on Royal Street from 4 till 6 p.m. on Friday, August 30th. Everybody's invited So stop by for a memorable champagne happy hour at Brennan's. Then the party continues on Saturday, August 31st, when some of the beauties from the book will join me at a meet and greet book signing at the Historic New Orleans Collection at 520 Royal Street in the French Quarter. So Boo is sending Hooch Punch. Yes, that recipe's in the book too. And our next Poppy's Pop Up Drag Brunch, benefiting Crescent Care's Food for Friends program, takes place on Sunday, September 8th at the Poller at the Poncha Train with Food by Jack Rose. It's sure to sell out quickly, so reserve your spot today. Tickets are available online at thepollernola.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. This week's Culinary Quiz Question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How did the historic New Orleans collection come to exist, right there in the heart of the French Quarter? You could say essentially it all started in 1938 when General L. Kemper and his wife, Lila Williams, bought two properties in the French Quarter the Marriott House in the 500 block of Royal Street, along with a late 19th century residence contiguous to the Marriott House facing Toulouse. The latter property served as their home for 17 years, during which time they amassed a substantial collection of important Louisiana artifacts, which formed the original basis of the historic New Orleans collection. To ensure future generations would have access to their collections, upon their deaths, the Kemper and Leela Williams Foundation was established, creating long-term financial support for the collection. With the incredible success and expansion of the HNOC, what would the Kempers have to say today? It's my guess they'd be very pleased with how their legacy lives on in the city they loved you can take a virtual tour of the Williams residence and learn more about their lives by listening to a past episode of Louisiana Eats. You'll find the link on our homepage at poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats.
5: My name is Daniel Hammer and I am President and CEO of the Historic New Orleans Collection.
0: Daniel Hammer's journey to become President and CEO of the Historic New Orleans Collection began back in 2005 when he was originally employed as a receptionist. In his 14 years with the organization, Daniel has served as a member of the reference staff in the Williams Research Center located at 410 Charter Street. This is where I first met him. Over the years, he and his colleagues have assisted me as I've searched through photographs and documents from our city's past. I've never written a book that didn't involve research there. Open to the general public, I think of it as one of New Orleans' great undiscovered treasures. I asked Daniel to join me in the reading room to talk about the facility and its place in the HNOC's mission.
5: Our reading room is a place that's open to the public, like everything else about our institution, um, six days a week, and people can come in and access our collections for their research purposes. Uh, A lot of our visitors are reputable, very well-known scholars doing exciting and important historical inquiry, uh, and many of them are just folks who are interested in some aspect of their family history, Maybe they want to do research on their house. Maybe they want to do genealogical research. Maybe they want to find out if that story that grandma used to tell them about, uh, you know, the neighborhood growing up uh, has any record in historical documents. And so they come to us um, in pursuit of those research projects. And um, we have our entire collection available to them to use. We have a staff of um, full-time reference assistants who, um, as I did years ago, help people access things, help people find what they're looking for. And so the reading room is um, really uh, a very important part of what we do, and it's a very special part of our institution that I think makes us different than most other museums and uh, history centers around the country.
0: Even if you're not necessarily a scholar, just that you like to pretend to be one like I do sometimes you're treated with such respect and given such help. I would say 99% of everything I've written has always included photographs that I was able to find here.
5: Yeah you know it's funny that you put it that way because um I felt when I worked in the reading room that I every day I learned something new that I didn't know before about our collections and it was because of the people who were coming to do research no matter whether they were advanced scholars or just hobby researchers or even somebody who walked by and saw the sign on the door and thought oh let's see what that's all about but you know the questions that people ask about what we have are usually things that are unique to them and their interest and so they were things that were not on my radar because they're their interest, not mine. And so I ended up always, every day, going down these paths of inquiry into our collections that were coming from other people. I think that when you engage with artifacts from history uh, in person, uh, it, it is an experiential thing. It's not just about the information that's held in that artifact. It's also about um, engaging with this object from the past. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that we're located in the French Quarter. You know, this place has been here throughout. And so, in a way, things that have happened in New Orleans can be read in the fabric of the French Quarter and read in the historic materials that are are preserved in our collection.
0: I asked Daniel if he could take me into the area affectionately referred to as the vault. When you make a request, this is where the librarians go to find that special artifact you're searching for.
5: So yes, we're here in the vault, also known as our collection storage facility, but uh, uh, we like to call it the vault. And you see over here on the left, coming up from the floor, these are called stalagmites, and what you see coming down from the ceiling, those are the stalactites.
0: <laughs> Thank you. It, it it is like a cave. No, now seriously, Daniel, you funny man. What else is in here?
5: <laughs> well, we have <laughs> we have the uh, you know the bulk of our collections are here in this facility. Um, the room that we're in right now is uh, a large room that is uh, filled with a lot of different types of storage furniture to house objects of varying types. So we have large flat file drawers where we have uh, printed materials, maps printed on paper. Uh, we have uh, painting storage racks where we have paintings hanging. We have uh, cabinets that we have three-dimensional objects in. So. You know, everything from uh, small sculptures or um, ceramics and silver uh, pins, uh, political objects, you know, ashtrays, you name it.
0: Is there anything that you can think of that you occasionally just like to have a peek at or touch perhaps because it means something special to you?
5: Well, there is an object that comes to mind, although I don't um, go around touching it uh, indiscriminately. <laughs> but uh, I kind of have a, a particular object that I have a, a story about, you know, my relationship with it, let's say that. I have studied a lot of, about the history of the German community in New Orleans over the years working here. I originally started working at the collection because I speak German and I was able to make some inventories for German language collections that we have here. I developed out of that an interest in the history of the German community in New Orleans. And one day I was reading a pamphlet uh, written in the 1890s by a German New Orleanian named J. Hanno Dyler. And he tells a story about the uh, German community of New Orleans creating a gold medal to thank Bernard Maroney for his efforts at the State Constitutional Convention of 1845 to prevent a anti-naturalized citizen amendment from passing in the Constitution, so protecting the rights of immigrants. And it was a gold medal, and Dyler describes it. It had Maroney's likeness on one side and a symbol of friendship on the other side. And I just kind of said to myself, you know, that sounds like something— the Historic New Orleans collection might have. And so I went into our, own, our catalog system, and I looked up object type coin, you know, subject, uh, Bernard Maroney, and I pressed search, and lo and behold, I got a result. Oh. And I was like, wow, wait a second. So I went back to the location, and there indeed was this coin, exactly as Dialer described it, 24-karat gold coin about an inch and a half in diameter quite large piece and it was sitting in a case uh, in one of these storage units here in this room and uh, it was amazing to me that we had this and uh, it's now on display in our Louisiana history galleries and uh, it has a little indentation in the edge it looks kind of like a tooth mark like somebody bit the thing you know see it was really gold which it was Uh, But other than that, it's completely flawless. It's really a beautiful object.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wonderful stories. And thank you and the Historic New Orleans Collection for all you do for all of us scholars and non-scholars alike. Thank you.
5: Well, thank you, Poppy. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Daniel Hammer, President and CEO of the Historic New Orleans Collection. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau, and from the Bourbon House, from oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.